DIY projects are all the rage. And if you uh, don't know that, you've missed out on the best part of the pandemic, which was learning to do everything yourself. So I uh, sometimes get on Pinterest or YouTube and you can figure out how to do just about anything yourself. No need to pay the professional until you run into a problem. <laughs> And then you realize that there is a whole bunch in life that you just can't do yourself. And that is a really, really good lesson. And in Ephesians, we get to see the, the do-it-yourself project that we could never do. And that is the saving work of Jesus Christ. But one of the great things about DIY projects, successes or failures, are the before and after pictures. And I think the after pictures on the failures are the best because you just made it worse. But these before and after pictures give us an appreciation for all that went on. We get to revel in the work that was accomplished. We get to display to other people what we've done. I mean, what else is social media for? Well, these, these before and after pictures are needed. And Paul gives us before and after word pictures in Ephesians 2 in the whole chapter. And that's what we're going to consider again today. So last week, we considered Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which was kind of like the close up, zoomed in before and after picture, focusing on the individual. But in verses 11 through 22, it zooms out and we see the corporate emphasis, what God has done for all mankind in Jesus Christ. So on the individual level, we have the before picture where we're sinful, we're dead in sins, we're sort of like the walking zombies that, that have no life but are roaming around in sin. But then we're brought to life because of that great phrase, but God. And then we're pictured as new creations for good works. That's the before and after progression on the individual level. Well, now at a corporate level, we're pictured as separated, separated from God and from one another. And then we have another glorious but phrase. And it's but now in Christ. And there's a transformation that happens here whereby we're created into a new person, a new humanity for God's dwelling, a dwelling place for God. So we're going to look at the second word picture before and after transition with a corporate emphasis. And as we do this, we know that our individual salvation isn't separate from the corporate emphasis, but we need to see what God is doing for all people across time. So though I will work hard to show how this fits you individually, we need to step back and look at the redemptive story to see what God has been doing and how that is radically different in this new covenant age. So let me read this text. If you haven't turned to Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22, it's up on the screen as well. Let's read this following along as I read. So then, Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. 
in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. There's a danger of looking verse by verse, and that's that we miss this whole big picture that we read. And so I've made a chart for you so we can see this all at once. Paul distinguishes between when we were in the flesh, that is before Christ, and when we are in Christ. And this movement is glorious, this but now in Christ movement. So I've, I want to highlight it here. You need to see the, the bird's eye view that by yourself in your flesh without the Messiah, you were without the Messiah. You had no hope. There, there was no one to rescue you. But in Jesus, who is the Messiah, you were brought near. In the flesh, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Talk why that's a big deal in a second. But in the Messiah, you're made fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. This is a new identity. In the flesh, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. But now in Christ, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're recipients of the gospel of peace. In the flesh, you were without hope or better yet, you were with false hope and without God in the world. But in Christ, you have access in one spirit to the Father. And not only have you moved from being without God in the world, you now have God in you as you become a dwelling place for God. This is true for you as an individual, but Paul is trying to emphasize what this means for the church at large, for God's whole people. So right away, we need to just remember and recognize that our personal salvation is not just personal and all about me, but it's about God's people who are being made into one holy nation, one new man, a people for God's name. And I think there's a bit of a danger in, in our world where private spirituality is cool. That's fine. Just keep it to yourself. And Christianity is about you and God and no one else. There's a danger that we move from glorying in our personal salvation to making that everything and disconnecting our salvation from the body of Christ. But Paul doesn't do that. He moves very quickly from a focus on your individual salvation to a focus on this corporate nature of salvation. So I just want to suggest that we should respond by working our salvation out with other Christians. And that as we identify ourselves as Christians, we can't do that apart from a church. So later in the service, a few individuals are going to join in membership in this assembly. 
And that's illustrating the reality that there is no Lone Ranger Christian. That's an anomaly. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but we never see it in the Bible. And we get to see people joining this church so that they can be part of the body of Christ, a dwelling place for God. So our focus needs to shift and modulate between the reality of our personal salvation to our corporate emphasis. So there are three phases that we'll work through. In the before picture, we're separated from God and from one another, but then in Christ, we're reconciled to God and one another. And then in this after picture, we're a new humanity for God's dwelling. But let's start by emphasizing what was once the case. We had this old identity. We were separated. Now, this, is, this takes a little bit of explanation because we're very far removed from where Paul was writing. He is writing in a time where Jews and Gentiles were very separate groups. And in fact, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was written in such a way that it would actually keep foreigners at a bit of a distance. That's what was going on with some of the food laws in particular. If you can't eat with somebody, you don't have communion with them. And, and so these laws kept Israel and the other nations at an arm's length. And there were ways for Gentiles to connect, but even in their connection to God's people, they were always kept at a distance. So at the temple, there's this dividing wall that would keep Gentiles on the, the outer side of it. And uh, there, there's a division that we just can't quite hold on to you because we've been living so long in this new covenant reality. But if you read in the book of Acts, there's a situation where Paul uh, brings some Gentiles into the temple. And there's a riot because of this. And it's such a big riot that the local external authorities take Paul into custody. There are several hearings. They let Paul speak to the crowd. They, they go nuts again. So they bring Paul back into custody and eventually he's carried away. And there's something like 200 horsemen and a bunch of other soldiers. There are there's this huge protective guard to keep Paul alive because of the hostility between Jew and Gentile. All that was started by Paul bringing some Gentiles into the temple. So if you try to, in your mind, if you can think of some of the, the riot videos that you saw from this last summer, think about that, but connect it between Jew and Gentile. So in this text, when Paul is talking about how amazing it is or how bad the separation was, you need to think in those kind of terms. The, the kind of hostility that would take somebody's life is what's going on here. So we miss that very often, but, but we've got to grab onto that if we're going to hear this. So Paul says there in verse 11, he's talking to Gentiles in the church in particular. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised. And this is connected to the old Abrahamic covenant, this relationship between God and Abraham and his descendants, where the mark of that covenant was circumcision. And this is very weird for us to talk about in our day, but it was very meaningful. And uh, it was the, the Gentiles who were not circumcised were talked about pejoratively. So, so the Jews were sort of looking down on the Gentiles in this way. They're, they're not one of us. They're not one of the people. But what's interesting here is that Paul subtly subverts, and, and really not so subtly if you have ears to hear, the Jewish way of talking about Gentiles. He says that the, the Jews are circumcised, but it's done in the flesh. So he puts them on the same level as Gentiles. You're, you're both in the flesh, 
But then he goes one step further and he says that the Jews circumcision was done by human hands. And, And on its face, that's sort of meaningless to us. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, over and over again, when Israel is condemned for their idolatry, the idols are described in this way. Idols that were made by human hands. And it's the exact same sentence, same phrasing in the Greek New Testament as it is in the Greek Old Testament. And I think what Paul is doing here is, is he's directing his comments to the Gentiles in the church. The, the Jews are listening and they're hearing very clearly If you find glory in your circumcision and in this old covenant identity, you're committing idolatry because we're in the new covenant now. This is a different age. So, so though that doesn't hit us as strongly because we're, we're not in that world, it's significant. And, and we need to, I think, respond appropriately, which is to say, recognize the covenant that we're in. And, and if we keep trying to live in the old covenant, we're going to fall into idolatry of one sort or the other. I'll talk more about what that means in a moment, but we need to recognize that Jesus has done something new and different. So he goes on, at that time you were without Christ or without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in this world. What, what does that mean? A foreigner to the covenant of promise. Well, as you read the Bible, the way that God works with people is he makes covenants with them. When, whenever God breaks into human history to set humanity on a trajectory toward salvation, it's in a covenant and it's in a particular covenant. So at creation, there's this creation covenant. And then with Noah, there's the Noahic covenant. And then with Abraham, there's the Abrahamic covenant. And, and that starts to get connected to somebody's DNA, to their offspring. And the Mosaic covenant was part of that. It, it particularized it to Israel and the Davidic covenant within it. And if you're a Gentile, you don't have any of the promises of the covenant. Those promises aren't for you. Therefore, Abraham and his offspring, therefore Israel. So Gentiles by default were without hope and they had no covenantal connection to God in this world. So they did indeed worship gods, but they were false gods and they weren't the gods that could bring any hope. So this picture is a picture of isolation and separation. And really it's a picture of exile, an exile that goes back to the garden when Adam and Eve are, are removed from God's presence because of their sin. Well, categorically in the way that God was working throughout human history, Gentiles were by default in, in that category. Most of us are Gentiles, I would assume, And we need to hear this with an appreciation for the fact that from the day you were born, you were always offered the covenants of promise. From the very first time you heard the gospel proclaimed, you were included in this thing. That's a a monumental shift in redemptive history. And it's lost on us so much, but Paul points it out here and we need to grab onto that. We are living in a privileged age. He goes on then to talk about how this happens. How is it that we can go from this old identity of being foreigners and strangers to the covenants of promise to being reconciled? Well, it's that glorious phrase, but now in Christ Jesus. So where all was wrong, Jesus made everything right. We've sung about this as we were singing, Jesus, thank you. We were enemies. And while we were still enemies, Christ acted. 
It says, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. And, and the idea here is that prior to this, Israel was operating based on the old covenant. And if you've read things like the Ten Commandments or you know the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are a lot of laws in there and that's the legal legislation connected to the old covenant. It's like, it's essentially like the constitution of Israel that they were to live by in this covenantal framework of their relationship with God. Well, in Jesus, Jesus met all of the obligations of that constitutional document and he became the law. He, he fulfilled it. He, and so sometimes we use this word abrogated and that just means that Jesus obeyed perfectly and he brought in a new covenant so that that nation's constitution is not our constitution. Jesus and his commands become our constitution. So we don't live our lives by the laws in the old covenant. Now that doesn't mean they're irrelevant and we should never read them. On the contrary, we really need to read them and we need to learn from them, but we are not called to obey the laws in the Old Testament because Jesus did that. We are not called to obey the laws in the old covenant legislation because we're part of the new covenant. That old covenant kept people out. The new covenant brings people in. And in that new covenant, there is peace that's preached to those who are far off, Gentiles, in peace to those who are near, Jews. And that's the language you get in the book of Acts as the apostles are preaching about this new work of Jesus. Now, on a theological note, this is a little bit of insider baseball. So if, if you haven't heard about this, just don't worry about it. But there's sometimes a major debate about how many people of God are there. And it, there's often a distinction made between Israel and the church. And there's this idea that there are two separate people of God. I think we need to say with Paul here that in Jesus and in the new covenant, Christ created one new people of God, one new man for himself. And however you work that out in your eschatological thinking, I, I think you have to keep affirming there is one people of God and this is new and different and it's surprising. It's surprising. That's why Paul talks about this as a mystery. So when we get to Ephesians 5 and in that text about marriage, he'll, he'll say something like two becoming one. Well, this is a mystery, is what Paul says. And that's because people read the Old Testament over and over again, and there was no hope for the Gentiles that they could see. Well, Jesus expands this in a surprising way. And there's a fulfillment of the new covenant that spreads God's glory and kingdom across the globe, renewing the original creation covenant purpose of filling the earth with image bearers who represent God and who declare God's glory wherever they are. So um, you can be a happy member at, at this church and not, not agree with everything I just said, but I think you lose something. And I, I think you lose the grand climax of the redemptive story and this eschatological vision of God's glory across the entire globe in one new humanity. I, I think that's how we ought to hear it. And the result of that is peace. Peace on earth 
across the earth because we're made one in Christ. There is no longer a distinction in ethnicity or gender or, uh, or social status or wealth or anything else because we're one new man. We're a new humanity declaring the peace of Christ. Now, as we look at these sort of things, we, we struggle to understand the, the Gentile Jew newness in the one humanity that comes here, and we have to work at that. But I think we also then need to take the next step and say, what does that mean now for us? As, as we see something of the character of God, and as we hear this declaration of peace from Jesus that, that tears down walls of hostility, how should that hit us and how should we respond to it? Because it doesn't just stop with a new humanity of Jew and Gentile together. It goes forward and it's expressed by individuals from all different kinds of backgrounds and varieties, finding their greatest hope and joy in unifying factor in Jesus Christ. This is a message that is not um, hard to hear and anywhere else. We, we hear messages of diversity and we need this everywhere else. But the, the message of diversity that's preached on the news and in uh, the cultural fads of our day is one that always stops short because it's always going to, there, there's always going to be a sacrifice of something and there's nothing that's sacrificed that can bring everyone together forever. Well, as we continue to read about Jesus, he doesn't privilege the different groups. He makes them into one new group. So the diversity messages of our day say everybody needs to sacrifice a little bit of themselves and then we'll find this equilibrium where everyone sacrifice equally and, and then we're going to have unity and diversity and peace. Well, Jesus's message says, I'm not privileging Jew or Gentile. I'm taking them both and bringing them together in one new person based on my sacrifice in, in my redemptive work. So in the next verses, he says it in this way. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body. So both Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God through the cross. That's his sacrifice by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The point that I'm trying to make here is that if we go about trying to find diversity and unity or unity in diversity in the way that the world gives us, we're never going to get there. It's always going to fall short because there's never this understanding that ultimately we must be reconciled to God. Our world's conversation about diversity is just about being reconciled to each other. And, and that's right insofar as it goes, but it stops far too early and it begins at the wrong place. Jesus' message of reconciliation begins with a reconciliation to God that then works itself out in reconciliation to one another. I, th I think that Christian churches are in danger of hearing a different means of reconciliation and trying to go down this path of figuring out how, how can we um, privilege those who are once oppressed and sort of oppress those who are once privileged in a way that finds a, a balance when in reality, we need to say where, where, where there has been wrong and sinful oppression or, or racism or anything else, the, the perpetrators of that need to first be reconciled to God. They can't be reconciled to the other first. So there needs to be repentance and genuine repentance. 
and, and then the other, who, whoever that happens to be, wherever it is, they, they need to find hope, not first in, in the um, a, a system change, but in the God who provides peace. And, and then that peace should work itself out in the way our churches are structured. And, and that's where we're going to experience the diverse unity that's offered in Jesus. So this is a complicated mess, and it's hard to say anything about it with, without crossing some boundary in, the, in a way that you don't want to. I, I don't want us to always be tripping over ourselves as we try to talk about how we find unity with people who are different than us. That, that's a hard thing to do because there are so many um, things where you could just say the wrong thing. It doesn't meet a politically correct way. But I think if we start talking about we need to be reconciled to God first, that's going to help us all the way down the line. Because I think that the reality is, as we look at just our city, we have a very diverse city ethnically and not just black and white, but Hispanic and Asian and otherwise. We have a very diverse city in terms of economic status. Go on the post office website and you can see the average income in neighborhoods and it is very different. Well, we, we want to reach our whole community and, and that means that we don't have to make a choice between trying to become a, a rich, wealthy, hipster church or a, you know, church for down and outers. It means we could become a church that declares the peace of Jesus that reaches all and that makes us all equally uh, even before God. Nothing in us makes us closer or farther from God because we stand under this framework of the new covenant in the Jesus who reconciles us both to God through himself. Again, this is, this is a hard conversation to have and, and there's probably no right way of doing it. But I think we've got we've to wrestle with it. We've got to deal with it. But I, I want to give one other response to the way that Paul does it. And that is that he gives this conversation within the framework of the church. I, I think our tendency is to talk about racial harmony or ethnic diversity or poverty and wealth in terms of a political framework, primarily in our country between a Republican and Democratic divide. But the way that Paul gives us and the way that Jesus gives us is that you deal with this in the church. And, and that means that your church needs to be an outward facing church such that as there is unity and diversity and reconciliation in these walls, it expands and hits your neighborhoods. As you, as you start having neighbors into your home and sharing Jesus with them in a different way forward. And so, so it's a trickle up effect, not a trickle down effect. We don't start with the president of the United States and then hope our churches become pictures of God's redeeming grace. We, we start here and hope that we can influence outward. This is something that each of us needs to consider, especially in a day when there's performative social media posturing and news cycles and everything else that tells us the answer is starting big and working small. So I want to encourage you and, and perhaps push you outside of a comfort zone to start going through your neighborhood and beyond and bringing people into your home for dinner 
in talking with them and getting to know them, having a meal together. This, is, this I think, is what, what Jesus models for us. He models it in the Lord's Supper as we're drawn into that meal. It's prefigured in this marriage supper of the Lamb. There's something about sitting down at a meal that transcends boundaries and brings people together. So as we, as a church, think about this, and especially as we relocate, I want to push you to do that and, and to go beyond just your neighborhood, but start, start doing things in Burnsville. In, in this Burnsville center area. That, that's hang out at those parks. Start talking to those people and, and start showing Christ where, wherever you are. We can do that. And we have a responsibility to do that because though we were once separated and um, identified and marked by hostility, we've now been reconciled and we've been given a new position and job and status. And that is we are now a dwelling place for God. We're a new humanity for God's dwelling. He says in verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So, so just another word here, though Paul was originally probably prompting Jews to say, hey, Gentiles, you're now part of our family. You and I need to say to anyone who comes to Christ, you're part of our family now. No matter how different you look from me, no matter what your background is, we're now fellow members of God's household. That, that's something that we need to have a posture as, as people walk in this door, that we welcome them. And in, in that even if they're different than us, and perhaps especially if they're different than us and we don't like initially click with them, chase them down and show love to them and, and say we are part of God's family together. We're fellow citizens in this new body politic. Like he goes on, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. What he's saying here is that in the old covenant, God dwelt with his people in the temple or the tag- tabernacle. And, and you would go to a place so you could be closer to God's relational presence. Well, now in this new covenant community, the church is a temple and as individuals were temples such that wherever your feet go, you take God's presence with you. There is a huge responsibility in that because in the ancient world, the sacred space was a a place where someone could go to commune with God. Well, now you are the place where people can go to commune with God. So think of yourself that way. When, when you go to your unbelieving neighbor's backyard and sit around a bonfire, you are an access point to God that they wouldn't otherwise have. And that's part of the new covenant. And, and when you come here, as we gather together, that access point, it's, it's like it's on steroids strong because we're coming together and now is the body, the one new humanity. We declare God's presence. So, so bring people to church, allow them to hear people rejoicing in God's glory. But of course, don't stop there. Take God with you wherever you go, because he promises he goes with you now. His spirit is with you. You're a dwelling place for him. So as we take one more look at this, you've been brought near. You're now fellow citizens. You're not foreigners or strangers, and you have God dwelling in you. I've given you some points of response along the way, but I just want to emphasize four of them here. First, praise God's glorious grace. Praise God's grace for what he's done in this, in this before and after picture. 
And if you start to forget it, look at the after picture and remember who you are. Or better yet, who you were. And then remember who you are now in Christ. Second, connect your salvation to your, and your identity in Christ to, to the new covenant community. Remember that your salvation isn't just about you, but it's to be worked out in this covenant community. Give attention to the body of Christ. Third, declare the peace of Christ. Don't declare the peace of anything else. There, there, there are false prophets that declare peace, peace, and they can't offer peace. But Jesus offers peace. So offer Jesus and find peace. And finally, bear God to the world. That's your sacred calling is a temple of God is to bear God to the world.